एक मिनट रुक जाओ रेडी होने दो चलो ये कर लेते हैं ब्रॉडकॉम just the corporate years that i've spent actually turned out to be the most productive most fun and most exciting years of my life and at texas instruments when i started i had a very good boss i think that determines i mean how your uh, work life is actually around and i think that was a place where concentration of talent was amazing and pretty flat structure even in 2000s and there was a lot of intensity around innovation intensity around solving technical challenges and yeah that was a fantastic experience that uh, that's quite memorable and i think that motivated uh, a lot to learn more about technology how people manage technology how technology companies are run which is quite different from what you see how traditional industries uh, function in general and from texas instruments i joined a startup at that particular point of time called magma design automation which was into software to help uh, chip design that was my first trip with startups uh, stock options equity in a significant manner okay uh, because i think we were at texas instruments evaluating software and have chosen magma to be the provider and since magma stock was rising in front of my eyes and so oh, wow it's a great opportunity and uh, i was one of the first five six members of magma design automation in india magma was an indian company no no it's a american company okay. uh, founder was again a nit nit surat kal guy but had a pretty good india presence in general and that's a company where i went through the entire process of working with enterprises winning enterprises deals so from a techno commercial role at magma where you were also involved in winning deals into a pure technical role at broadcom like did that make you feel restless and was that the impetus to eventually be an entrepreneur like what was the impetus 
So the impetus was never dissatisfaction with whatever I was doing. I think it was an exciting journey. So there is nothing that was lacking, let's say, in any of these roles. Uh, All of them were challenging. All of them were very nice teams. So there's no dissatisfaction. I mean, to be frank, I could see the startup sector coming in around entrepreneurship by itself had an attraction and even at Magma and even at Broadcom, it was an, a company that was acquired. I joined a team that was acquired into Broadcom. So that entire journey of building something from scratch and actually becoming very rich was very fascinating. And I felt that that's an experience that uh, worth giving it, giving a shot. All right. So I think that was the impetus rather than, I mean, like anything to do with dissatisfaction of among among any of the roles. So how did you start, you know, what was the first step? Like I'm assuming initially while working only you would have started exploring ideas or tell me about that journey from being employed to being an employer. So I was always looking out for ideas in general. So I think are like I evaluated five, six ideas over a period of time that included a sports social network and it included some reverse bidding and e-commerce deals, etc. And out of the ideas, the filtering process that I kind of approached at that point of time was out of these ideas, which one is something that I can sell to any business in the world? And every, say, a consumer could be a potential user of the platform. So that way, the market is pretty big and there is a good opportunity for being a successful company or product. You wanted to have a B2B product, like you were clear on that. So when we started, it was not a B2B product, it was a B2C product. In fact, I wanted it to start as a B2C product. The reason was we started the company while I was still working at Broadcom. And it's very tough to do a B2B company while you are working somewhere. And a B2C was the fastest way of reaching out to market. But I think the concept that we thought about was that there's like so widespread adoption on WhatsApp in India. And if there was a way for consumers to interact with businesses also in a similar channel, that's something that every business would potentially benefit from and every consumer would benefit from. And there was nothing like that at that particular part of time. So we launched actually a B2C app that listed businesses and enabled consumers to start messaging businesses. So that was the first avatar of the company. When did that decision to go full-time happen? Like you initially started like a B2C style kind of a platform. So how did that evolve then? So we almost worked part-time for like one year. And we were already seeing that we were being written about. Uh, investors were approaching us. Uh, there were already oh, wow. about uh, 25,000 plus transactions happening per day. So people were downloading, reviewing, good reviews and all that stuff. You had an app. Yeah, we had an app. We had like 100k downloads, even when we were working part-time, three of us. What was driving these downloads? Like, what was the use case that people were using it for? So it started off with people trying to book restaurants, started off uh, with people. At that time, even Swiggy and all this were like pretty new. People even ordered food quite a bit uh, through this. We also had rechargers, etc. So a lot of that too. So multiple of these really drove uh, the initial downloads. And how would it work? Like you could search for something and then you would have a chat button. Yeah, you you search for, let's say, nearby restaurant and you click that button and somebody say, I want to order something. We had like a two, three member call center uh, that would respond on behalf of the business and actually make that particular order or transaction work or provide customer support for that. Uh, okay. Then where's WhatsApp in this? 
There's no WhatsApp. It's our app, which was like WhatsApp for business. Okay, okay. So somebody downloads, let's say, Yellow Messenger, and uh, they choose any business. It could be even Flipkart, Amazon, or it could be a nearby shop, and starts uh, chatting about what they want from that, uh, just like they would chat on WhatsApp. So there was no WhatsApp at that point of time. It's uh, it's our own app, uh, but it kind of functioned like a WhatsApp for business. How did it become what it is today? Like, what was the next version of the product? As soon as we came out, we said like we need more visibility, more support. So we started applying for accelerators. We went to Startup Chile. We got some 40K dollars from there. And of course, I think some visibility. Then we went to Microsoft Accelerator. So what happened by that time was that what happened to be our idea. In general, the world was waking up to this. And Facebook started to talk about it. Microsoft started to talk about it. And Facebook Messenger opened up for businesses. Uh, Suddenly, there was a lot of need or hype about messaging with businesses suddenly. Hmm, Like conversational commerce. Conversational commerce, yeah, that term came in. So when we started, there was like no term. So by that time, we had automated these conversations and we had a pretty good tech build out. By the time the hype started to take off, right? And then Microsoft said, you know what? Like our customers are asking for it. We were part of Microsoft Accelerator, which introduced to the Microsoft sales team. And we were like four member team at that point of time. And they said, you know what? Our customers are talking about this. They're asking if Microsoft has a solution. We don't have a solution at that point of time. We can introduce you to those customers. They started introducing us to Tata Power, Asian Paints, IOCL, and all of them were pretty impressed with what we were showing them. I think we were the only company which had even a working prototype at that particular point of time. So they started giving us some deals. But this was all for Yellow Messenger itself, not for uh, integration. No, 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 no. So we changed the model, right? So we showed Yellow Messenger, but what we said is that the same interaction can happen on your website. The same interaction can happen on your mobile app rather than our mobile app. Because we found out at that particular point of time that growing a B2C company in this space is going to be challenging. That too, when we are bootstrapped and we don't have the entire ecosystem of businesses and all that, they're a small team. So let's go and try to sell in a SaaS model for businesses. And at that time, we're still like focused on B2C. Oh, once we get all the businesses, we can still do a B2C uh, app. But let's go and work on B2B websites because that's going to give us revenue immediately. We're going to integrate with those systems. We're going to even see users and customers without us spending on customer acquisition. And we said yes to those customers. And that's how the journey started. And once we started the journey, the customers actually were seeing good ROI. I mean, once it launched on their websites, the number of phone calls to their customer support were going down. Their consumers were happy. Their CSAT scores were increasing. Then we got Bajaj Finance as a customer, and they were expecting about just 50,000 users to kind of adopt the platform. But within three months, uh, it has gone to almost a million users per month. It's just like the product market fit was so, so strong that the first five, 10 customers that we saw, all of them uh, expanded, their consumer base on this platform expanded. So we clearly landed to a clear product market fit that if you have automated messaging-based customer support on your websites and mobile apps, you're going to see that your customer support cost reduce, your customer experience improve was a proven thing. Now we went out about then building platform around it on how to create these conversational journeys, how to build analytics, how to do all the enterprise features that are required to scale to multiple enterprises. And now we had reference customers, had a good platform, 
We had partnership with Microsoft. Then we started scaling to more and more customers. And I think from then on, it kind of take off, right? So we got a million ARR. What does an NLP API give you? So at that time, NLP API was giving something called an intent and entity. So intent is like you can define uh, what the customer wants and train it based on a few uh, utterances. An entity was like, you can kind of think of an intent as a verb and entity as a noun. That's how they started. So you can understand what the customer wants you to do and also the noun on which you want to do that action. That was what NLP APIs were starting to give at that particular point of time. Okay. And what were you pricing it like? Was it based on number of transactions, like number of conversations? Uh, number of conversations. Okay. That's how we were pricing too. And even right now, we are pricing based on that. If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion-dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis Podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the show. So when did you hit the 1 million ARR? We started selling this model in 2017 start. 2016 also was sold, but... In 2016, we were selling as more like uh, one-time payments, right? In the sense that, uh, you know what, I mean, we'll deploy this cost extra because we never knew that whether this will kind of work or not. But once it started working, we started on the SaaS model in 2017. So by 2017, started with zero ARR and 2018, October or so, got to a 1 million ARR number. So it took about yeah 18 to 24 months from zero to 1 million ARR. And Indian customers? Yeah, yeah, all Indian customers. Yeah, there's like spread off a little bit of customers from UK, but majority, 90% were Indian customers. And how did you build the sales organization? Because enterprise business means you need a strong sales team. You know what? I think till we hit 1 million ARR, I was the only sales guy in the company. There was only just one more that I hired from somewhere else. And yeah, so majority of those deals were done by me. How did you crack high value deals? You must have learned how to do sales or... Was it something which, because of your Magma experience, you were Yeah, like... I think that played a quite a big part is what I would say. I think though in Magma, I didn't sell, but I was in close uh, contact with the sellers who were selling really high-value deals. And frankly speaking, right, I think our business model was quite right at that point of time. I think glad that we chose the model where what we chose. So we were really not closing high-value deals to land in the sense that I think most of the customers would have ended up paying pretty less as a starting fee because it's based on conversations. But where I think the low lands actually expanded to become high-value deals is when the number of conversations expanded. So from, let's say, a 25 to the almost become million conversations, automatically the deal value became 200K ARR and 300K ARR. So, so I think sales just got us into the door. But I think the real value and deal expansion happened when uh, the usage of the product expanded. So the way that voice automation works is somebody calls on the phone, uh, either inbound or outbound, says, I need to, let's say... Uh, I need to get a personal loan and the software understand what the person is talking about, provides options and starts a conversation, either loads the deal or provides a response back to the end customer. This sounds very, very uh, intensive to build out. Like you would need something which will understand, like which will be multilingual. Because yeah, I, absolutely. I think that's why we have a 130, 140 member software team building this out, right? So we have folks from Google, we have folks from Mintra, Flipkart, 
have PhDs. So it's a pretty uh, large engineering team in the company that builds out these products. And it has multilingual support. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are the world number one in multilingual interactions because we have customers in Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, Brazil, Mexico, and of course in India. All of them, multilingual is absolute requirement and no other company in the world is processing as many multilingual conversations as we are doing. So yeah, absolutely. So your uh, first fundraise was that small friends and family round of one CR that you did. So tell me about the funding journey subsequent to that. Yeah, so in 2018, I think when we were closing on 1 mil ARR, in fact, uh, so we were like hugely profitable. We were we had 40% uh, profit margins at that particular time. So funding was the pure choice in the sense that we were really contemplating whether to raise or not. Uh, because I think as for the company's survival, we don't need to. And uh, we went to this program called Extreme Entrepreneurs from Lightspeed uh, Venture Partners. I think they had a pretty good program and we liked it. Uh, They had these global startup leaders talking about their experience and stuff. And then we went to that program. And of course, as a part of that, we shared our story, what's the product, what's the company. And then Lightspeed expressed interest in investing in the company. Uh, At that point, we just thought about in a way that, hey, if we take funding versus not take it, uh, which one would we repent more? Uh, and we felt that, yeah, I think maybe at this point of time, it's, it's kind of got a good scale. Uh, Lightspeed is a great partner from what we heard. They have a great brand name and great companies. And we really like Dave Kare. He was the investing partner, Dave and Heyman. We like their perspective about the industry. So we went ahead and accepted that series of funding about $4 million at that particular point of time uh, to help us uh, kind of build out our sales team and expand into new markets. So that was the first round. I think uh, uh, the sales course accelerated when we built out the team, etc. And I think in a year, we grew by almost 4x from where we are. And uh, then uh, we have happened to meet uh, Lightspeed uh, US team that visited India and Lightspeed India and uh, kind of introduced us to them and uh, and they came back saying uh, the kind of traction that we are seeing and the kind of customers that we were having like Schlumberger, uh global customers is something that is pretty exciting even at a global level and they have seen a great market for us to expand in the US and beyond. We had interest from their team and, and that helped us close on our second uh, funding round about $20 million. The second round was essentially to go global. Global, absolutely. What happened is uh, just, just before we wanted to go global, we had COVID. So the second round was during COVID, actually. So while while we kind of closed the term sheet before COVID, by the time I think we closed the transaction, COVID was pretty big and there was lockdowns and stuff. So we delayed our like hiring in the US, uh, but we built out a team in India itself with uh, kind of targeted uh, global markets. Um, and uh, COVID was a, a pretty significant tailwind for the company. Uh, we pivoted our messaging, uh, et cetera. WhatsApp became a key channel for uh, enterprises to engage during that time. So we grew another 4X during the one year after CDB. Uh, so we moved from about 110 people to about 550 folks over the last 18 months and uh, the 4x growth in ARR. This year, we felt that, I mean, the capital markets are at their peak and it's a great environment to 
to kind of raise further money and expand even faster. So we raised our Series C, I think just a month back or so with some of the best partners in the world. We had Sephar Ventures, which has about like 20 plus IPOs in the last five years. Yeah. We got Westbridge Capital, which has some of the best companies in India, US Corridor, and also invest in public companies. And we got the, the company that has the best understanding of customers across the world, which is Salesforce. Wow. Uh, so it was pretty great to get Salesforce investing us. Uh, so yeah, so that's been our like funding journey in general. Are you at liberty to tell me the valuation? We haven't shared the valuation, but I would say it's pretty close to a half a billion dollar. Are you now hiring on-ground people also in these global markets or are you looking at India-based? No, no, no. So we have like a pretty reasonable US team. So right now I'm in US. I don't know if I have a team. So we have like an 18-member team in US and uh, uh, we are in fact having a US geography sales kickoff in New Jersey uh, in the second week of September. And our plan is to get to a 70 to 100-member team in North America market. We are hiring local field uh, sales in every single market. So we have our team in Brazil, uh, we have our team in uh, London, we have our team in Mexico, Singapore. So we're pretty much up out there. Uh, Japan, we have a sales head in Japan and Thailand. So absolutely, we are investing a lot in sales and marketing in local markets. What do you think helped you outpace your peers? Like say, you know, like you said, Haptic, which has been around for a much longer time and has that backing of Reliance. But, you know, what's the secret sauce? Yeah, secret sauce is um, one, I think being aggressive in the market. I mean, you need to build out your marketing sales teams so that you are in front of a lot of customers. Second, I think we made, uh, we were very agile. Uh, I think Haptic and us both started as B2C companies. I think we moved to the B2B model pretty fast and uh, we worked with some awesome customers to start with and we had tremendous amount of focus towards making them successful. Beat uh, our work with Pachaj, we uh, beat our work with Asian Paints, beat our work with Procter & Gamble, uh, etc. So we learned a lot from those deployments and the product improvements are essentially driven from the scale that we were seeing with our initial customers. So the product uh, became way, way superior to any other product in the market out there. So any discerning customer, I mean, it's very tough for them not to choose us. The only reason they potentially don't choose us is potentially on the pricing. But the technology, because of working with phenomenal early customers, kind of put a, put the product at a much superior position. So it's a combination of, I would say, strong product and aggressive distribution. What do you see as your fastest growing markets globally? Yeah, the fastest growing is definitely US market. So India continues. India back continue to be very, very strong markets. But the next huge growth we'll see in the North America market. And that is driven by more and more businesses opting for automation in yeah, customer absolutely. support. Absolutely. And- uh, automating customer support and, and the platform has ex- expanded to so there are companies who are adopting yellow AI even for HR automation, IT automation, and the product has been built to deliver multiple use cases. So it's built on an infrastructure where people can configure conversational use cases on a self-serve platform and the ease at which they can deploy for multiple use cases. Uh, I think that has uh, grown. And we have some significant partnerships with Microsoft and, of course, with Salesforce that kind of help us get to the market faster. Uh, so that is driving a lot of growth. 
and and of course we built our sales team as well right now so that's like a determinant of how how much you can sell as well and between the channels of communication like say whatsapp or voice or on cloud telephony and say facebook messenger and say your native chat application inside the customers app which of these channels is likely to be fastest growing yeah so right now the fastest growing is uh, voice uh, so that's because of the lower base as well i would say but uh, this right now is the fastest second fastest growing right now is whatsapp third is our own websites and mobile app based uh, sdks but overall as a volume the web and mobile app has the largest volume because they were the first channels that we kind of deployed into the market and we've seen considerable growth but there's like new channels are like opening up fast and growing but voice we see how do you uh, navigate around not promoting spam because you know like say if people are getting whatsapp marketing messages and then it becomes seen as sms you know the way today i hardly open my sms app because 95% of messages yeah. are promotional messages yeah. you know so, so, so uh, how you navigate so that, that i think uh, uh, i mean we don't do that right we what we do is we depend on whatsapp and uh, what the companies want to do so whatsapp has pretty stringent guidelines around uh, what can be sent uh, through uh, outbound notifications and there needs to be a consent from the users before sending those how is that consent audited like is it based on the company says i have consent or is there a no right i think audit? the advantage of two way platforms is you get feedback from customer you say hey uh, whatsapp if you see any message that you got from whatsapp it says is it intended you wanted you want to put it in spam more people put it on spam there's a feedback right and the account is uh, is automatically blocked deactivated right so so it's not like uh, uh, like some theoretical uh, audit yeah, sms doesn't have that option yeah sms does not I... have that option right so that it's uh, is it intended or not uh, and even for outbound calls there's like clear try guidelines etc and we see ourselves as a platform as an enabler we don't because we are not sending the messages we are giving a platform to send conversational messages and it's up to how the companies that are using us determine what is the right way to uh, use the platform and they bear the consequences of either way they can use it in a great way that improves customer experience where you're not waiting for customers to ask you but you're proactively informing them information versus using them for spam so so we, we see ourselves as enabler than the marketeers we are not the marketeers we are the providers of a platform that provides a phenomenally great way of running outbound campaigns which always have been one way without any feedback to actually being two way and then enterprises realize that that's a superpower uh, that they can use and amplify but yeah it can be used for spam as well but i think it's up to the enterprise we don't want to be the controllers of that you know how email as a communication channel today is super accessible for even like say a one person freelancer if i want an email automation platform it is extremely low cost for me to set that up purely as let's say a podcaster doing user engagement so when do you think messaging will reach that kind of a accessibility where you know it is like super available super low cost just self service you know because as of now from what i understand like you know whatsapp is expensive especially if you compare it to email as a channel of communication how do you think that market will evolve so i think uh, uh, so even right now whatsapp can be done self so we have launched a 
cloud.yellow.ai. So uh, you could go uh, get a WhatsApp account and uh, start messaging customers. How much would that cost? Right now per interaction, it is about 29 paisa. Yeah, I think you can get started with that. Uh, I know that it's maybe a little expensive than, than email, but this is what I tell people, right, is that nobody sends an email, nobody sends a WhatsApp message for the sake of sending message. There's always an outcome that you want to achieve. Uh, the outcome could be read rates, outcome could be conversions, uh, outcome could be lead generation. So you can use a low-cost channel, get five leads versus you pay something and get 20 leads. It's what delivers you the impact for your effort and for the money you spend is the channel that you want to kind of use because nobody sends SMS for the sake of sending SMS. So, and if your read rate is very low, uh, there's no point. And especially in India and uh, emerging markets, how many people even access email? Uh, Yeah, for you, it makes sense for podcasts. I think people like on the end of the spectrum who use technology a lot, they have emails. In India, everyone has WhatsApp but very few yeah, yeah, have yeah. Uh, email, right? So there's no option other than to use that. And second, if the interactions are initiated by the end customers and not proactive, then it is uh, free to use. Uh, if you have a great customer base that engages you on WhatsApp, it's absolutely uh, uh, free to use. So yeah, that's how I, I look at it. Cool. So what is the role split between the three co-founders? Like who does what? So I do uh, primarily on the uh, revenue, sales, and marketing. Uh, I take care of that piece. Kishore takes care of technology. So the entire engineering is run by Kishore. Uh, Rashid takes care of product. And uh, we always call Rashid is the only person in the company who can write code and who can sell software. (laughs) So he connects the entire loop. Uh, So he, he helps the product. So are you now based in the US to drive sales there or? Drive sales and build a team here, etc. So essentially trying to build the US market for the company. What are the challenges of managing a globally distributed organization, workforce? Yeah, it's like lack of proper sleep because you get woken <laughs> up at different times. That's the number one challenge, I would say. Um, right. I think that's the number one challenge, I would say. Uh, is uh, I think there are demands from different geographies. And uh, thankfully, I think we have some great leaders in Asia Pacific who are like, pretty much running the show. That helps me sleep better. But I think how we manage our time, energy, I think is the key challenge uh, of running global organization. Your family has moved with you? Not yet. Uh, potentially next year. So with all this COVID, it's very tough to move around. Uh, so I came in and I think potentially they'll move in uh, next year. What do you see as the end game? Is it an IPO? Is it an acquisition? Like say Salesforce could be a possible acquirer or, you know, what do you see as the, the long-term end game? No, the long-term end game uh, for us definitely is the IPO. That's the North Star for the company. So we are working towards that. But, you know, anything can happen, right, in general. Like working towards that as in you're seeing that like in a one to two year time frame mm-hmm. or like? So no, it'll not be one to two years. IPO in these days, you need to be a 200 250 million dollar business company. I think it'll take us about another four years to get there. So a realistic uh, timeline would be a four to five year timeline from now actually. So that was Raghu telling Akshay Dutt about building yellow.ai. If you'd like to know more about this, then do log on to their website, yellow.ai. 
This episode of Founder Thesis Podcast is brought to you by Long Haul Ventures. Long Haul Ventures is the long haul partner for founders and startups that are building for the long haul. More about them is at www.longhaulventures.com.